conflict is probably not what you want served at your family's Thanksgiving dinner this year, right? Some turkey, mashed potatoes, pumpkin pie, and a heated argument. Vanilla ice cream goes better with pumpkin pie than strife. But as much as we dislike conflict, it can't be entirely avoided. Peace is atypical. Conflict, on the other hand, is pervasive. You don't have to go very far to find it. Because conflict is undesirable, we tend to do what we can to avoid it. We want peace and harmony. We want peace and harmony so much that sometimes we compromise. Sometimes we talk and act differently than we know we should just to avoid conflict. Now, we all know that conflict is inevitable. Everyone has it to some extent. We'd like to limit it if possible, but for us believers, Jesus adds additional conflict. So believers are tempted sometimes to pull back from Jesus, to pull back from biblical truth simply to avoid that extra conflict. There's another temptation. We're tempted to think that we can compromise Christ a little, still be faithful enough, and still get along okay with the world. Maybe if we're cool Christians, people will see that we're pretty normal like them and not hate us. This is an unrealistic expectation which sets us up for disappointment, discouragement, even doubt and compromise because Jesus creates conflict. Certainly, sometimes Christians are antagonistic. They're unnecessarily offensive and discourteous, and we should repent of that. But Jesus' followers being antagonistic is not the predominant reason for conflict with unbelievers. Jesus himself is the predominant reason for conflict because the world hates Jesus. It's easy to forget that, brothers and sisters. The world hates Jesus. The world crucified the most selfless, kind, and loving man ever. So if we trust Jesus and follow his lead by contending for the truth and living in righteousness, we will not only face conflict, brothers and sisters, we will be the source of it. When people roll their eyes at us, get angry about our biblical convictions, accuse us of being so judgmental and condemning and treat us poorly, it may be that we've been uncivil, but more likely it's because we're being faithful. Jesus knew that as he worked to achieve salvation for his people, the world would be hostile to him and his work. It would serve us well to listen carefully to Jesus and to never expect peace on earth until he returns. We set ourselves up for immense discouragement when we think we can be faithful to Jesus and avoid conflict over Jesus. It won't happen. Not in the U.S. and not in any other place. Jesus creates conflict. It was the Prince of Peace himself who told his apostles in no uncertain terms, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So many people get Jesus wrong simply because they don't listen to him. They put words in his mouth. They change his words. They omit some of his words. They even twist his words. They just don't listen to his words. Did the Son of God come to earth to bring peace to all relationships? No, quite the opposite. 
Jesus said he came to bring division, discord, dissonance. And if we rightly understand Jesus, we will see how good these words really are. Division means salvation. These words encourage us to be faithful whatever it costs us. These words guard us from watering down the gospel to reach more people. They guard us from compromising to be better liked. They guard us from having unrealistic expectations and from assuming conflict means we're doing something wrong. Again, we might sometimes be antagonistic and push people away, and we must repent of that. But if we're not dividing people by contending for the faith and doing good works in the name of Christ, if we're not experiencing any conflict because of Jesus, something is askew. Brothers and sisters, if we truly follow Jesus, we will not only face conflict because of Jesus, we will create it. And I don't mean create it by being abrasive. That's sinful. I mean, as we contend for the truth and love and serve others in the name of Jesus, strife will come to us because of Jesus. It was the love of Jesus which stirred up more contention, controversy, and conflict than anything else in history. As he loved, he was hated. As we love like him, we too will be hated. Here's where I'm headed. What you gain in following Christ far exceeds what you give up to follow Christ. And when you truly believe it, you will joyfully give up all to follow Christ. The gospel won't help you escape conflict with the world, but will help you escape conflict with God and anger, resentment, and contrariness amidst conflict with the world. When you believe that what you gain in following Christ far exceeds what you give up to follow Christ, you will be at peace and maintain love when conflict comes to you because of Christ. We don't love and follow Christ because he makes all our relationships harmonious. We love and follow Christ because he rescued us out of our sin and misery and our greatest delight is serving him, whatever the cost. Before unpacking verses 34 through 39, Jesus' tough words for his apostles. Jesus was forthright with his apostles. He sobered them with the words of warning and quickened them with words of blessing. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus didn't promise his apostles that they'd be popular and comfortable. He caused them pain, but he gave them the kingdom of heaven. He promised them great reward in heaven. He told them that they were sheep in the midst of wolves, that they would be flogged and dragged before governors and kings for his sake. He told them they would be hated by all for his name's sake. But he also comforted them with truth and promised them reward. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus did not send them out into persecution and strife without promising them unfathomable joys. One more thing to consider before unpacking verses 34 through 39. The Sermon on the Mount explains the kind of life Jesus wanted his disciples to live. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount carefully, it outlines many things that G- that, that uh, disciples of Jesus must give up to live for him. Things including anger, lust, retaliation, hatred of enemies, resentment, worry, judgmentalism, and living an easy life. All of those things must be given up, but all are worth giving up for the sake of Christ. Number one, Jesus didn't come preaching, can't we all just get along? His gospel is polarizing and antagonizing. By polarizing, I mean the gospel sharply divides people. By antagonizing, I mean the gospel creates hostility between people who believe it and people who don't. Now, let's be clear that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, as Isaiah 9, 6 states. This is why at the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Jesus brings his people peace. Not the world, but his chosen people. Paul taught in Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' disciples have peace with God, but not peace with the world. Because the world is at war with God. Neither did Jesus come to bring military peace, political peace, familial peace, or economic peace to the earth. J.C. Ryle noted, the object of his first coming on earth was not to set up a millennial kingdom in which all would be of one mind, but to bring in the gospel, which would lead to strifes and divisions. End of quote. Jesus put it this way. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What did Jesus mean by a sword? Sounds militaristic. Sounds like a crusader cutting and stabbing in the name of truth. No, it's metaphor. The slash of a sword means conflict. What Jesus meant was he came to bring conflict, division, separation. In the very next verse, he mentions setting family members against one another. In Luke 12, 51, instead of using the word sword, he used the word division. He's talking about relational conflict and division. When people get saved, they change. And the world doesn't like the change, especially because it makes them feel guiltier about their sin. So um, God's gracious transformation of sinners threatens those who want to keep on sinning. The apostles were not to think that everywhere they preach, people would gladly receive their gospel and the world would be converted and become a much nicer and safer place. That wasn't going to happen ever. 
Now, many, many people would believe, many would receive peace with God through their preaching and writing, but others would stiffen and oppose them. They should expect hostility. For the, host, for the apostles uh, to have false expectations in their mission would set them up for unbelievable disappointment, discouragement, and doubt. This hard truth lovingly prepared and equipped the apostles to persevere through pain to eternal glory. Jesus readied them for the fight of faith. It's hard to see people reject Jesus and hard when people reject us because of Jesus. But we must realize that Jesus didn't come to make all our relationships harmonious and comfortable. He came to save us from our sin and misery. And in so doing, our relationships would be strained. Number two, by preaching the gospel, serving others selflessly, and saving his people, Jesus creates bitter conflict. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He came and selflessly invested his life in serving others. He came and lovingly saved his people from their sins. How did the world respond? Crucify him. Pin him to a cross. Kill him. Get rid of him. Bitter conflict. Look at what the gospel causes in verses 35 and 36. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. The gospel of Jesus Christ causes division among families and that doesn't sound helpful. However, let's not forget why the conflict exists. It's because Jesus is saving people out of the world from their sin and misery and those refusing to repent and believe get angry about it. Here, Jesus quotes Micah 7, 6. Micah was lamenting the wicked state of society, how even families are broken apart. And Jesus takes Micah's prophecy and applies it to the conflict he brings on earth. The idea here is not that Jesus saves people only to make them harsh and combative with their family. No, quite the opposite. What he's saying is that once a person begins to follow him, to live for him, they may indeed lose their closest relationships. Why? Because in loving and following Jesus, you will offend those who don't want to love and follow Jesus. They'll resent you on account of Jesus Christ the Lord. Whether the man in verse 35 is the believer or his father, whether the daughter is a believer or her mother, whether the daughter-in-law is a believer or her mother-in-law, Jesus will be the cause of conflict inside the home. That's the point. Jesus will be the cause of conflict inside the home. Uh, back then, multiple families lived under one roof. When a woman married her husband, she moved in with his family. Honor was expected from her for the, for the family. Imagine that newly married wife, after she gets married, joins her family's husband in their home. Imagine her coming to Jesus and, and joyfully finding her hope in him 
having her sins forgiven and having new joy and new life in Jesus, but everyone else in her new house, including her husband, hates Christ. Well, things get hard for that wife real fast because of Jesus. All of a sudden, home feels threatening. It feels rotten for her to wake up every day to face her enemies in her own home. That's hard. But she has peace with God because she has the peace of Christ in her heart. Now her mission becomes to love her hostile family with the love of Christ. Two weeks ago, I mentioned Kandi Munda, the Indian Mason, with a wife and two girls who was beaten to death for Jesus. His family hated what he had become in Christ. His, his wife's father wanted her to renounce Christ in order to just, to just to survive. That's division. That's conflict. That's what Jesus causes. Here's where suffering on account of Christ is so hard. Simply by coming to Christ and seeking to honor him, your family can turn on you and make you feel like you're the problem. How can you do this to us? How can you believe and say these, these horrible and divisive lies? You're so intolerant, so biased, so sexist, so homophobic, so proud, so fanatical, so mean. You think we're all going to hell, don't you? Don't you dare judge us. You're no better than us. You're breaking our family apart. That's... That's very hard. And this happens, brothers and sisters, not because followers of Jesus are malicious and combative, though we can be. We must repent and instead show the love of Christ to others, to unbelievers. This happens, brothers and sisters, because we strive by the Spirit to follow Jesus, to love others, to live righteously. This conflict comes because we're pleasing our King. The conflict isn't always severe for us, but it's always there. The apostles no doubt experienced familial strife to some extent. We, we, that probably happened. In fact, Jesus Christ himself experienced familial strife. Just think about this for a little bit. If the perfectly loving and patient and kind Son of God experienced familial strife, why would we expect something different? He's not asking the apostles. He's not asking you or any of his, of his disciples to suffer that which he has not already suffered. Mark 3.21 says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Jesus' family thought he was crazy. Did Jesus compromise to win their love? Did he shrink back in fear to avoid conflict? Did he go easy as to not stir the pot? No, he endured. He remained faithful. He did his father's will unto the cross. And by grace, in the end, some of his family came around and were saved. And friends, this is not radical Christianity that I'm talking about. This is not an extreme form of Christianity. This is simply Christianity. This is the cost of following Jesus. Jesus creates bitter conflict. Many will hear this truth 
and water down the gospel to be more comfortable, more liked, or simply consider the cost too much. But to gain our family's approval by renouncing or compromising Christ is to lose our souls. As Martin Luther's famous hymn exhorts, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Whatever family loss you suffer on account of Christ, you gain so much more in Christ. In fact, you gain a better family. The church is a much more significant bond than blood relations. We have a deeper bond with Christians in China that we've never met than our blood relatives that reject Christ but love watching football and eating wings with us. This hits so close to home. So we must consider what Jesus says in verse 37. Number three, Jesus demands that you love him more than anyone or anything else. The word demand is a strong word. Sometimes we bristle at the thought of someone making demands of us. But if we are to know Christ as our Savior and Lord, as our prophet, priest, and king, we must know that he makes demands of us and it is our greatest delight to submit to him. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus demanded this of his apostles. And it helped them have the proper perspective as they set out to follow him. This helped them let goods and kindred go for the sake of Christ. For they wanted to be worthy of Christ. He makes the same demands of us today. We must love him, adore him, cherish him, enjoy him, and honor him more than our father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, wife, or best friend. Or else we're not worthy of him. If there's a conflict between what Jesus wants from us and what our family and friends expect of us, we must side with Jesus for he is far better. Jesus does not mean that we should treat our family badly. He demands that we love our family selflessly. His point is that we must love and honor and prioritize him above our families. And if we don't, we perish. Is Jesus right to demand this? Is he a megalomaniacal? D.A. Carson said, the saying is either that of the Messiah or of a maniac, end of quote. For anyone else to say this, it would be a delusion of grandeur. But Jesus is God, the Christ, the Messiah, the supreme king of all creation, in fact, the creator himself. So to say this is actually the truth that leads believers to their greatest joy and satisfaction. Father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, wife, or best friends can do nothing for you on the day of wrath when the King of Kings returns to rid the earth of all evil. Heed the words of Psalm 2, verse 12, a song about Jesus Christ. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Take refuge in Christ, dear ones, and let goods and kindred go. 
for to have the favor of the Prince of Peace is forever. It is in your best interest to love him most. Do you know what our country does to soldiers who go AWOL or desert their post in order to reunite with their families? In the heat of battle, if a soldier retreats only to catch a plane back to his family, he could receive a dishonorable discharge, a forfeiture of his pay and allowances, confinement, and even the death penalty. How would you feel if our U.S. soldiers, when taking their oath of enlistment, recited, I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, except Iran, which is all, also deserves my allegiance. That, that little addition would not be okay. That would be terrible. See, demands are loving. I make demands of my children, sometimes tough ones, precisely because I love them. Exclusivity is also loving. How does marriage work without exclusivity? Jesus makes demands, hard ones. He demands exclusive allegiance and love, but his demands, his demands are never without great rewards. Jesus demands from us that which is best for us. To think we can have both Jesus and our own way is to not have Jesus at all. Jesus demands even more. Number four, Jesus demands that you die and follow him. Verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. D.A. Carson helpfully clarifies, taking one's cross does not mean putting up with some awkward or tragic situation in one's life, but, faint, but painfully dying to self, dying to self, end of quote. Oh, my back hurts. I'm just carrying my cross. That's not it. Oh, my boss is so overbearing, always nagging us about meeting our goals. That's my cross to bear. That's not it. Oh, my teenager hates me for taking away the keys to the car. I'm bearing my cross. That's not it. Take up your cross is to die to self. Jesus was using vivid metaphor. Leon Morris wrote, Jesus's hearers were people who had seen men take up their cross. Anyone condemned to be crucified was required to carry the cross beam to the place of ex execution. They knew that when this happened and the man went off with a little knot of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He would not be back. Thus, for them, taking up the cross stood for the utmost in renunciation of the claims of, of self. The person who took up a cross had died to a whole way of life. Jesus demands from everyone who follows him nothing less than a death to self, end of quote. To carry the cross beam is death to self, death to your old ambitions, death to your old desires, death to your old plans, death to your old dreams. You die to self and your old ambitions, desires, plans, and dreams are replaced with the will of God. One study note said, Crucifixion is a shocking metaphor for discipleship. A disciple must deny himself, die to self-will, take up his cross, embrace God's will no matter the cost, 
and follow Christ, end of quote. The apostles literally followed Jesus around. And remember the call of Peter and Andrew. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. The call of James and John. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. The call of Matthew. And he rose from the tax booth and followed him. All of the apostles gave up things to follow the Messiah. You too must give up much to follow Jesus, but you will gain more. Ryle was right to say, happy is he who thoroughly understands that though Christianity holds out a crown in the end, it brings also a cross in the way, end of quote. When you wonder if it's worth it, if following Jesus is worth it, if suffering for Jesus is worth it, if, if losing all of this stuff that, 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 that seems so natural for others, if, if we lose it all, if the gain is worth the pain, if you wonder that, consider Jesus. He suffered the cross and was glorified. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was conflict that led Jesus to the cross, but it was peace he accomplished on the cross. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Jesus demands that you die to self that your old self is crucified and that you follow him into conflict to subsequently be glorified with him. Is this enough? Absolutely. Do it, dear ones. Follow him into the conflict that inevitably will come and you will have your reward. Calvin got it exactly right. He said, if we are vexed and tormented, by the thought that the gospel should set us at variance with our father or our wife or our children. Let us remember this condition that Christ subjects all his disciples to the cross. Yet, let us also bear in mind this consolation that in bearing the cross, we are the companions of Christ, which will speedily have the effect of allaying all its bitterness. End of quote. That's gain, brothers and sisters. We are the companions of Christ, which will speedily have the effect of allaying all its bitterness. The bitterness of the cross we bear is assuaged or relieved by the glory of being companions of Christ. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, because the friendship of Christ is the greatest gain. Solidarity with Christ in his crucifixion is our eternal life. Number five, Jesus demands that you lose your life in order to find your life. I'm trying to make this point. What you gain in following Christ far exceeds what you give up to follow Christ. And when you truly believe it, you will joyfully give up all to follow Christ. Conflict is hard. Who wants to lose their family on account of Christ? Who wants conflict?
because of Christ. It's really uncomfortable. Taking up our cross, that's hard. But as we do it, we find our life. Verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is massive incentive. One way to read verse 39 is, whoever finds their life spiritually will lose it physically. And whoever loses their life physically for my sake will find it spiritually. Now that's possible, but I don't think that's what Jesus meant. In classical Greek, to find can mean to win or preserve life. So if you hold on to and preserve your life, which I take him to mean your ambitions, desires, will, hopes, dreams, your soul, you will lose your life or lose your soul in eternity. Want to preserve it on earth? Then, then you'll lose it in eternity. You will perish. You will come to ruin. But if you lose your life, if you crucify your selfish ambitions, desires, will, hopes, dreams, and you receive new life from Christ, you will find your life in Christ. You will obtain eternal life. I think that's the idea. I think this parallels what Jesus teaches later in Matthew 16, 25, and 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In Luke 17, Jesus said, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, I do think martyrdom or physical death, dying for physically dying for Christ, is secondarily in view here. Renounce Christ to save your neck and you'll perish. Die for Christ and you'll find eternal life. I think that's secondary to the idea of crucifying the old man, the old life, and then coming to new life in Christ. When someone spends their life trying to be comfortable and to blend in to the world and, and to win over the world by being like the world, they will lose their soul in the end because of their compromise. It is when someone renounces their life, their old life, takes up their cross, dies to self, receives Christ in the gospel and devotes themselves entirely to pleasing him that they have true life in Christ now and forever, eternal life. Jesus gave up his life. Jesus suffered the wrath of God in his soul. And Jesus was glorified by God, given a name above all names. Jesus is Lord. The sacrifice of Jesus is the means by which we die to self and live to Christ. When we receive Christ by faith, all of his merits, all of his righteousness, he puts to death what is earthly in us by his spirit. Whatever conflict you face on account of Jesus, dear brothers and sisters, be certain you will be handsomely rewarded. You will live forever in the presence of God and every sacrifice you made along the way will be entirely worth it. Number six, though Jesus makes clear demands of you, 
He does not fail to make your willing and joyful sacrifice eternally worth it. Jesus said in Luke 14, 26 and 27, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus demands this. Jesus demands that we love him above all. That's what true discipleship is. Give up everything, follow Jesus, and be blessed beyond your wildest imagination. And this means that we follow Jesus wherever he has us. doesn't mean we have to walk away from our family. It doesn't mean we have to abandon our job and become a missionary, whatever. It, it, it means that we follow Jesus where he puts us, where he has us, and we're faithful in those things. And, and we stand with him and for him and contend for the faith in, in the place where he has put us. Listen to what our crucified and risen Lord promises us who give up all to follow him. I'll end with Mark 10, 29 and 30. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. There it is, eternal life.